have to ask you to go back to your seats. <laughs> I don't typically use country music lyrics as sermon illustrations, so we've already been a little atypical so far, so I'll be a little further atypical. If you saw the title to the sermon, it might have resonated if you listened to country music at all. In 2004, there was a song called Live Like You Were Dying, perspective of a guy who was in his early 40s who had been diagnosed with a disease that appeared to be terminal, and so it tells his story of what he decided to do at that point skydiving, mountain climbing, bull riding, and the song goes on and says, and I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness. I'd been denying. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Word of God does assume that we are to live like we are dying. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 has a very similar message. The one difference from that and the songwriter of the country music song is the writer in Ecclesiastes isn't wondering or hoping that you might get that experience. He is sure of it. He is confident that you and I are dying. And his message is very much to the point, you are dying, so live like it. Your life should be lived in light of that. It doesn't matter how old or young you are, how well you are today, how well the doctor said you were at your last checkup or what your lot in life is, you are dying, so live like it. Stop taking your days for granted. Stop living as if your life is not actually racing toward a physical demise. I want to read this section that we're going to look at this morning. It's Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. If you did not come away from that with at least a half a dozen different questions, then you're doing pretty good. It's not an easy passage. If you've been following along in Ecclesiastes since the beginning, at some points it may feel perhaps 
a little like I felt when I came back to this again on Monday morning. You know, the, the verse in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. There seems to be sort of a little repetitiveness, at least, if you followed Ecclesiastes all the way through, this discussion of death and the imminent reality of death. And so it can sound a little repetitious at points, some of the things he's saying, and my reminder to you on that would be that these are not merely the words of an older, wiser man looking back at life and offering counsel. This is not just a guy who's reached that point where suddenly he's looking at his 30th or 40th year class reunion and going, where did it all go? I, I, I was just young, and now I'm not. Now I'm old, and I feel my body betraying me. There's a little bit of that, but the key for us is that this is God's word. It is God who sees fit to continually remind us in this book of the imminence of our own death. It is God who continues to either directly or indirectly in virtually every chapter of Ecclesiastes bring up this subject of death, starting all the way back at the beginning of the book in verse 4 when he says a generation goes and a generation comes, where he starts that sort of circular argument about how life, you live, you're born, you live, you die, you're forgotten. It's kind of the point he keeps going through. And we see it in a number of scriptures in Ecclesiastes. You have a few of these before you. The wise dies just as the fool, and there is no enduring remembrance of him. These are all just from the first eight chapters. There is a time to be born and a time to die. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And he came from his mother's womb. As he came, he shall go again. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. You sort of see a theme coming through here in some of his writing. That he is focusing us in on the reality that life is short and it ends in death. That's just in the first eight chapters of Ecclesiastes. It is God who wants to confront us with this reality. It is God who wants to ensure that the readers of Ecclesiastes are not able to escape without having to think that there, is, there is, must be something more because this is short. This is brief. And this ends in death, and therefore you need to live like you are dying. And that's where we're going this morning. In light of some certainties that we'll see about life and some uncertainties that we'll see in this passage, we are to live like we are dying. Start with the certainties. Ecclesiastes 9, the first five verses, are very certain about two things, neither of which we control. One is God is sovereign, and second, man is dying. Verse 1 is sort of the transition, but all this I laid to heart examining it all, he starts with. You can look in either of two directions by that phrase. He's either coming to the place of sort of summarizing everything that he said and saying all this, as in all that we've just talked about, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing for you in this way. Or it's the idea that, but all this that I contemplated all this that I'm about to say, and I, I think it's probably the latter. He's, he's introducing what he's about to talk about, and he's essentially saying, I've examined all that I'm going to talk to you about, and here's some of what I've concluded. Here's some of these observations. And the first one is, your life rests in the hand of God. There in verse 1. Your life rests in the hand of God. 
Generally a comforting thought for we who believe in Jesus Christ, here not intended as much for comfort as it is stating the fact of God's sovereignty. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 8, the argument that he is just coming out of, which is, we are not omnipotent, we are not all-powerful, we are not omniscient, we are not all-knowing. God is gracious to give us some wisdom for daily life, but that is limited. We don't know all things, we can't control all things. We are very much in the hand of God. And that's his point here when he says that, is he's wisely reminding us that we are not captains of our own ship. That what he's about to say to us about both these certainties and uncertainties of life should all keep bringing us to the place of remembering that we are not in control, that we are in the hand of God. Now that's a little easier than the second part of the verse, which then says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. There are about as many interpretations of what that means as there are commentators who've written about it. Everyone has an idea of what he's trying to say at this point. Let me suggest to you that we strive as best we do in all of our Bible study to keep it in context. And so context says, first of all, you and I cannot control all things. We're not omnipotent. We, we are in God's hands. And also the broader context of Ecclesiastes, and that is that the teacher is making observations often that are life on this plane. He's, he's observing life in a sense, as it's lived under the sun. And so his observations often say, apart from everything else, this is how things look. If that's the case, what he's probably doing here, and this is just another point of context, when he uses these pairs, we've seen him use pairs frequently in Ecclesiastes, and a lot of times what he's doing with them is saying, here's the two ends of the spectrum, and that includes everything that's in between. He's using them not so much to set up the, the contrast as he is saying, it's this, it's this, and therefore it's, it's all of this. I think then what he's trying to say at this point is, all of life is in the hand of God. Frankly, we have a very limited view, and so as we watch life and we watch things happen and unfold, we don't always judge correctly. We barely fathom what's going on in our own hearts, much less what's going on in the hearts of other people, to jump to the point of judging their motives in some way and trying to decipher what's going on in their hearts, whether it's good or bad motives. So the certainty here is God is king, Life unfolds in his hand. He judges it justly and perfectly. We are not omniscient. And so what he's trying to say to us here is we see things and, and, and we might question the motive or be sure that this is being done out of love or this is being done out of hate. And he's warning us to hold our judgments loosely. Not to give up on discernment or wisdom, but to hold them loosely and to think about them and to understand that we are not omniscient. We can see these things unfolding before us, not always judge them correctly. And so we need to show care in that. God is in control. God holds all things with a firm grasp. We are not in control. And so we should hold our observations and our conclusions loosely, allowing for the possibility that we may very well be wrong. The rest of this opening section, 9-2 down through about verse 5, clearly moves into another area of certainty where he keeps talking about this event, this event that is coming for all, regardless of who you are or what your lot in life is. Not only is God sovereign, but you are dying. And what he seems focused on here is not just the certainty of death, but also 
the perceived, again, we're looking from, from this plane, the perceived wrongness of death. Understand, this is especially coming from the vantage point of a thousand years before Jesus Christ. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that death is an enemy. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, physical death is still a bitter enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And, and, and so death is, even from the vantage point of people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is still an enemy. Death is still not the way God designed it when creation was perfect. It is not the way that it should be, at least. God set Adam and Eve in the middle of a garden with a tree of life in the middle. And he allowed them to eat of that and to enjoy then an eternal life. But he said to them, don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you shall what? Die. And sure enough, when they did, they were banished from the garden. They were denied access to the tree of life. And they began to die. All of us have inherited that sinful nature from Adam's fall into sin. And we are all dying. And physical death, despite the hope of the resurrection, is still an enemy. We still grieve at the passing of a loved one. The point that we're going to see here in Ecclesiastes is God's word does not want us to respond to that reality with sort of a morose, um, giving up kind of attitude, with a sort of fatalism. He doesn't want us to, to deal with it by banishing talk of death, you know, just keeping it safe, you know, the euphemisms passing away. We don't, wanna, we don't really want to talk about death. We don't like death, and so we sort of try to skirt around the edges. He's coming at us hard with this and saying, no, no, it's, it's real, and it's coming, and you need to live in light of it. It doesn't, it doesn't make life meaningless. It shouldn't turn you into somebody who just wants to, to just hunker away and, and not deal with life. On the contrary, the message here is be aware, acutely aware, that death is coming and live like it. The real irony in this passage perhaps is down in verses 4 and 5 when he says that the living are better off than the dead, the living dog better than the dead lion. Uh, for the living, he says in verse 5, know that they will die. Why are the living better off than the dead? He says because the living can think about it. The living still have time to contemplate life and death. They still have time to weigh what they are doing with their time. For the dead, they have been overtaken by death. Keep this in mind as we go through this. And, and I think this is crucial to not only this passage, but the, the whole tone of it being consistent with the book. The teacher is focused on how we are living out today in this under-the-sun world that we are in. How we are spending our time now. He's not ignoring eternity but he wants us to remember that life today matters. That's why the, the last verse, the one that we've been memorizing up there, when he first says, so the whole duty of man is what? Fear God and... Go ahead. keep his. I'm making sure you're memorizing it too, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. So this is the whole duty of man. Why? What does he say in the last verse? Because he will bring every deed into judgment, even those in secret, whether good or evil. The writer of Ecclesiastes is concerned to remind us again and again that how we live matters. God cares about how we spend our time and what we pursue, especially so since life is so fleeting and death is inevitable. 
It troubles the teacher, and we see this in, in this portion of chapter 9, that death comes to both the wicked and the good. The ones who should be cut off early, at least again from, from human logic, these are the ones who should be stopped early because they do nothing but evil. And then you've got others who seem to do nothing but good. They do all these righteous things, and somehow they don't live as long as, as perhaps we think they should. And he's troubled with that, but it's the reality of life. And that's what he's trying to say to us again is, Therefore, all the more, be a good steward of the time you have, because it is so real, and it happens so soon. It's one last difficult part in this passage we've just looked at, nine, uh, one down through five, and that's verse three. It says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Often the some of the interpretations on this go to the, the certainty of man's sinfulness, and that seems to be clear in this passage, but I'm not sure that's entirely what he's trying to convey. Because the beginning of the verse is, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. This under-the-sun worldview that we've been looking at since chapter 1, the worldview that, that focuses on life strictly under the sun, doesn't look to God doesn't look past this life, does not think thoughts about eternity, simply living for the here and now, the under the sun, evil sort of perspective on that that we've seen in Ecclesiastes, goes to this point in death. To the unbeliever, the, the, the message of all this imminence of death says, well, if this is it, if I'm not thinking past this, then I might as well do what I want. I might as well live for myself. I might as well grab everything I can and do everything I can and not care about other people and be wicked if need be because I'm, I'm here to please myself because what you're telling me is I'm going to die and be forgotten anyway. If we're all going to go the same path and we all end up the same way and we all end up forgotten, then I might as well live for myself. And that's really what he's describing there in verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. The under-the-sun worldview perception that death is just this random evil can sort of incite the idea of, of wickedness and madness from people who say, okay, I'm just living for now. I'm just going to live my life the way I want and do what I think feels good. That's the world's way of living like you're dying. I want to read on, and, and we'll come back to what he prescribes here for you and I, but jump down to verse 11 for just a moment, because now he gets into, we've had these certainties, now there's some uncertainties that, that also um, create problems for us. Verse 11, again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. All right, we've seen two certainties. God is sovereign and we are dying, right? Here's the uncertainties that he deals with. The first one could be described as sort of the, the, the seeming randomness of life. The things just sort of happen. And then the second part is, the suddenness of death there in verse 12. The randomness of life part is in verse 11. Those of you who love to watch sports, you should love verse 11. Because the theme of verse 11 is the best athlete and the top team 
doesn't always win. That's why we watch, because occasionally the team that's not favored rallies and wins. Occasionally, the, the Redskins beat a better team, right? I'm a Rams fan, so I have no grounds on which to talk. So if I ever make fun of the Redskins, just make fun back. The teacher's point is that life cannot be scripted. David beats Goliath. The poor man is elevated by Jesus Christ over the rich young ruler. There are scenes like this all throughout Scripture and scenes like this all throughout life that remind us that this is, this is not as predictable as we'd like it to be. It's not as logical as we'd like to script it out to be. Now, it's all under the sovereign hand of God. We've already gotten that point, so it's not actually random. But again, he's describing it from our limited view of things and what we see, and from what we can see from our vantage point, it sure can look random and unplanned, a little disorganized at times. It, it, things happen not exactly the way we think they should. The point, again, to stress to us, just like with God's sovereignty and man's death, is that we are not in control. We have, we have the ability to use wisdom to carry out the things that God has called us to do, but when it comes to ultimately being in control, things happen that are unexpected. Things happen to us and around us that we simply are powerless to affect. That phrase, time and chance, may not be the best translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew for chance could also simply be the word occurrence, or it could even be accident. Uh, the, the idea is things happen at times we can't control. Events that are occurrences, or even, even accidents, things. He, he's essentially saying time and things just happen. You know, we, we didn't plan it. We didn't put it on our calendar to go this way, and suddenly it does. And then he goes on in verse 12 and says, and then there's death. You talk about something that's unexpected. Are we ever prepared for death when it's the death of a loved one or someone close to us? We think we are. We may know sometimes that, that all the circumstances are, are pointing toward this, and yet it's still a shock. I, I still remember standing at my dad's bedside in hospice, knowing what the doctors had said, knowing the reality that, that he was going to take his last breath at some point sometime soon, and standing there when he did and still feeling shocked that it was at that moment, at that time. It still takes your breath away. It still makes your heart skip a beat. And that's not even beginning to think about the countless tragedies that happen when we're not even thinking death is a possibility and we get that phone call and the only thing we can say in response is, that can't be. That's not possible. I just saw him. How can he be gone? And that's what he's saying here in verse 12. Fish caught, birds caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. The seeming randomness of life and suddenness of death are things that challenge even the most mature, trusting believers in Jesus Christ. They are things that absolutely beguile the world and frustrate those who are apart from him. So where should all of that lead us? This is another one of those passages, sort of the Hebrew poetry, where we've looked at the beginning and the end, and he's kind of bringing us back to, to his conclusion, which is really in the middle we know the certainties, we know the uncertainties, so what are we to do in light of them? Ecclesiastes 9, let me pick up in verse 6. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, 
Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life, of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. If we're honest, as believers in Jesus Christ, reading Ecclesiastes 9, we're tempted to say, uh, this is a sort of defective view of life and death. This is weighted a little bit too much on the side of life and ignoring the reality of death. I mean, after all, when we come to the New Testament and we've got Paul with the full understanding of the gospel and the resurrection, Paul in Philippians 1.23 says he is hard-pressed between staying on in life and going to be with the Lord. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. There is Paul longing to pass into eternity and yet understanding that God is continuing to use him for a time. Now, Paul had a fuller gospel-centered picture of what life looked like right after death. It caused him to long to be with the Lord, but the, the, the teacher is not ignorant here either. It's, it's not like we can say, well, he just doesn't get it, because Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So life after death was not known in the same fullness that we have with the gospel, but it wasn't unknown either. There was still the understanding that it was not annihilation. A person did not die and cease to exist. The body went returned to the dust, but the real person, the soul, lived on and in fact went into the presence of his or her creator and stood before God. So Ecclesiastes is not trying to make life on earth supreme over eternity with the Lord, but rather trying to keep hitting us with this theme that what you have now matters. This, right now, is a gift from God, and therefore, like every gift from God, right through your salvation and eternity, like every gift from God, be a good steward of it. Use it well. Be thankful for what God has given you right now. As one writer puts it, Solomon is advocating a vigorous engagement with life, not a stoic resignation to the inevitability of fate. He's, he's trying to remind us that, yeah... The, the spirit goes to be with God, death is imminent, but that doesn't mean you then live just sort of in this, okay, monkish kind of, I'm not going to do anything, go anywhere, I'm just going to hunker down and, and wait for that time, because it's coming like a speeding train, and I'm going to be gone. He's saying, live. Take what God has given you, and live now as a good steward of this life. He's urging a full life, and it's a life that is based on faith. Faith is not mentioned in this passage, and yet it's all over this passage. Because how do we receive gifts from God? Well, we believe that he is the giver of those gifts, and we hold out our hand to receive them. We believe and understand that it is God who gives these things, and we rest in that. Verse 6, where I started, has this mention of love and hate and envy expresses the idea that life is, is filled with passions. Life is filled with expressions of emotion. And in this life, we can still express them. We can still choose to love, or we can choose to reject. We can still 
show passions. Not all of them here are, are pure by any stretch in what he's describing here. But in this life, we still have the opportunity to express them. And frankly, in this life, the benefit is that even where we've mishandled them, we still have the opportunity to go and repent and to try to right relationships where we've acted in hate or acted in envy. When we die, those left behind no longer experience our love. There's no way to repair relationships that were ruined by envy and hate, at least on this side of eternity. And so that's what he's trying to communicate here. And that's why this, this middle part of, of this section in Ecclesiastes 9 is focusing on living each moment by faith in God and by receiving from God what he has provided to sustain us in that moment, what he has provided for us as his blessings and his kindness in that moment. And so he, he essentially describes to us here gratitude, gladness, and gravity in these verses. Gratitude part is obvious. Food, drink, work, we've already seen in, in Ecclesiastes, they're all gifts, right? They're all given to us by God. They're all things that we humbly receive from his hand, and therefore we are to be thankful for them and to receive them with gratitude. The gladness theme runs through this whole passage. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with merry cheer. Dress in garments that display joy as opposed to sackcloth and ashes. That would be pictures of mourning. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. He's calling us to live a life of gladness, not mourning. Remember again, this passage, the whole focus of this passage is revolving around the inevitability of death. And the suddenness of, of hardships that come upon us. And the fact that we don't have all the control over it. And that we are not sovereign. And, and that fact can either embitter you. That, that stuff just happens. And, and, and it can make you furious. Or it can resign you to, to giving up. Or you can respond to it as a believer with gladness. And say, you know what? Yes, it's short. It might end this afternoon. But I am savoring what I've got in the moments that God has given me. You and I face the same uncontrollable certainties and uncertainties. We don't have a sovereign hold on our lives. And your life will probably end sooner than you think. But he's calling us here not to panic. Not to grasp for, for false ways of trying to get control somehow. What he's saying is, trust me, receive what I'm giving you, and rejoice in it. Just enjoy what I've given you in faith. Believe that I will give you what you need for the moment. Trust me for that. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't, don't crawl up into a cocoon. Receive these things. Eat, drink, food, love, friendship with a deep trust in God. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. If you know anything about the church at Thessalonica, you know it was facing persecution was facing opposition from the, the Jewish world and the Roman world and all the people who said, enough with you Christians. And, and there's Paul saying to them, rejoice always. Be glad. God has saved you. You belong to him. You have reason to rest in that. Gratitude, gladness, and then even gravity. I think verse 9 when he talks about our toil your toil at which you toil under the sun, and then whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with your might. 
do it with the sense that this is it. He kind of goes on from there and he says, there's coming a time when you won't be able to work like this anymore. Now, I know that the quick reaction to that is there's coming a time when I don't have to get in the car and drive to work and show up at an office at 9 o'clock anymore. Yes, that's not what he's saying to us here. He's saying God has, God's provided you with that means to get to work. He's provided you with that job. He's provided you with the income that comes from that job. He's provided you with colleagues at work that you can have an impact on their lives. He's provided you with family that you can take the income from that job and be a good steward and care for them and provide for their needs. He's saying be thankful because there's coming a time when that'll be done and it'll be gone. Your life will end in death and when it does... What you were doing on earth will cease. And his point again is be a good steward. Don't squander it. Don't waste the time that you have left. Jesus in John 9, 4, similar thought here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In context, he's really seeing himself as the light and and his departure from them. But his point to stress to his disciples is an issue of urgency. If If God's given you things to do right now, if he's given you a mission to do, then do it. Be a good steward of it. Be serious about it. In fact, as verse 10 in Ecclesiastes 9 says, work with all your might. Pour your strength into it. And deliberately seek to give all that you can to it. There's one last statement, and we'll end with this. I kind of passed over it in verse 7, but I think it's sort of pivotal to all this. When he says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. That's a fascinating statement, and it's one, again, that the scholars are sort of all over the map on. What has God already approved? In a passage that talks so much of certainty, suddenly we've got a statement that beyond death and God's sovereignty is another statement of certainty. He's saying to, to people, God has already approved this. So what does God approve? Think big picture now in terms of scripture. What God approves when it comes to what man does is that which is done by faith, right? It's that which is done in a believing, dependent, humble heart that says, what I am doing is, is strengthened and empowered by you. It is only by your grace that I am doing it. And so it is an act of faith. If we try to offer works to God as a means of approval, if we just strictly try to say, I'm going to work and do all this so that God, you will approve me, there's no way that fits in here in, in, in verse 7. What fits in here, though, is that which is done in faith from a belief then that our works are done out of his strength and for his glory. Really what God is calling us here is to come to him in faith. You and I are only made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son as a ransom for sinners, and that he suffered and died on the cross to pay the price for our sin and rose again to give us victory over death and to give us life and to give us the assurance of that. Well, you cannot face death and all of the uncertainties of life that he's described here with a sense of gratitude and gladness if you genuinely do not have faith in Jesus Christ. You can laugh through points in life and you can have some some moments, but when it comes to the kind of perspective he's talking about here, 
enjoying and savoring life with the ever-present awareness that God may take me at any moment. You can't honestly approach that with gratitude and gladness apart from a deep trust in Christ and a hope that transcends this life, that goes beyond the grave. And so by trusting that God meets our needs, bread, drink, job, love in life, ultimately what we are confessing at that point is our weakness. I can't get these things in and of myself. I can't earn these things in and of myself. I ultimately must rest in him and believe in him. And in that, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, God is pleased. When we open our hands and confess that, God, you are in control of our lives, you must provide, we are by faith confessing that we rest in him, we believe what he says, and God says, I've already approved that. He is delighted when his children face the uncertainties of life and the inevitability of death with an unwavering faith in him seen in our gratitude and our gladness. I want to end with just a couple of verses that I love from the book of Habakkuk, talking about the Jewish people facing a time when they are utterly defeated by enemies. They've lost everything. And the writer in Habakkuk 3.17 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. In other words, though I have nothing. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How do you do that? By faith. You believe that God is true to his promises. And he says he will provide, and we can rest in that and believe that he is good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your sweet provision. We thank you for... The fact that you are in control. Lord, we, we buck against that if we're honest. At different points, at different times in life, we, we really would like to try to manipulate things more in our favor. But Lord, thank you for reminding us again through the teacher in Ecclesiastes that the call is to rest in you. The call is to believe that you are a good God who knows your people and understands their needs and who has provided amply so that we could be good stewards with what you've given to us. Father, help us. Lord, I, we don't know this morning as we sit here if everyone that sits here at this moment will be back here next Sunday morning, same time, same place, same condition. We have, we have no way of knowing that. And so please help us to be good stewards to use our time well, to be thankful for all of the opportunities and the provisions that you've given from your kind hand. Help us to be people who revel in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the hope that we have in him and living in light of that hope. May we live like we are dying victoriously and gloriously for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.